Hey everyone, a couple quick announcements before we start today's episode. First, our call for stories is open for our upcoming live show in New York City on Saturday, November 4th on the theme of Taking Care, which we are producing in collaboration with Bellevue Literary Review. If you'd like to pitch a story for the show, visit our website and you'll find all the information you need. Pitches are open to anyone who has been involved with the caregiving experience. So that includes doctors, nurses, family caregivers, hospice workers, doulas, veterinarians, and so much more. So I hope you'll check that out. Second, I want to tee up this episode of The Nocturnist because it's a bit of an unusual episode. It's unusual because this episode features me as a storyteller and a guest, and you'll hear a little bit more about that later. But since I'll be in the guest role here, I've invited my very good friend, Ashley McMullen, to be the guest host on this episode. So she'll be introducing my story and then interviewing me afterward about it. Many of you know Ashley as the host of the Nocturnist Black Voices in Healthcare series and as the current co-host, along with Kimberly Manning, of the podcast The Human Doctor. Ashley is a primary care physician at the San Francisco VA and focuses on the role of narrative medicine in medical education and bridging across differences. She is one of my favorite people in the world and uh, just wanted to go ahead and turn it over to the wonderful Ashley McMullen. Here's today's episode. This episode of The Nocturnist is sponsored by FlipMD. FlipMD is a competitive marketplace where physicians can source and secure consulting side gigs. Jobs come from a broad range of clients across all major industries who are looking for medical experts in their field. FlipMD allows physicians to expand their careers through consulting and other non-clinical roles that fit their schedule and their interests. To learn more, visit flip-md.com. This season of The Nocturnist is sponsored by the Physicians Foundation. Support for The Nocturnist comes from the California Medical Association. At The Nocturnist, we are careful to ensure that all stories comply with healthcare privacy laws. Details may have been changed to ensure patient confidentiality. All views expressed are those of the person speaking and not their employer. You're listening to The Nocturnist, Stories from the World of Medicine. I'm your guest host, Ashley McMullen. I'm thrilled to be here with you all. If you know me, you know I'm a huge fan of The Nocturnist. So what an honor it is for me to be able to serve as your guest host for this episode. In the fall of 2022, The Nocturnist produced a live show on the theme of sleep and dreams in collaboration with the UCSF Memory and Aging Center, the Global Brain Health Institute, and the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. And through a series of interesting events, which you'll hear about later, Emily shared a story on stage at that event for the very first time since starting The Nocturnist in 2016. In her story, Emily talks about a few mysterious dream experiences she's had over the course of her life and how her usual strategy of seeking answers in medical textbooks left her empty-handed. In the conversation that follows, Emily and I get to talk about dream symbolism, Emily's strange experiences with sleep paralysis, and the places she turns when science fails to explain. But before we get there, here's Emily.
When I was a little girl, I would sit at the kitchen table and look at my hand. And I would wiggle my fingers and wonder, how could a thought cause my body to move? This curiosity is part of what propelled me to medical school. When I arrived at medical school, I read voraciously. I sat wrapped in all of my lectures. I was ecstatic as I looked at blood under the microscope, the red cells, the white cells, the platelets. I love looking at the lymphoid tissue under the microscope, so purple and beautiful. Loved learning about the heart, the lungs, the liver, the spleen, what it all did and how it was all connected. I think I had this hunger to understand who I am, what I am, and how it all worked. I sometimes joke with my friends that it wasn't until the end of medical school that part of me felt like I could calm down. <laughs> I could finally relax. But there were still some questions that I had that weren't answered by medical school. And many of them had to do with my dreams. Now, despite going through medical training and all of the 28-hour call and sleep deprivation, I'm actually a pretty good sleeper. I fall asleep hard, and I remember my dreams. I still remember one of the first dreams I ever had. I'm about five, and I'm in my parents' large carpeted bedroom, and there's a plastic slide in the middle of the room. And I'm going up and down the slide with some other children. We're going up the ladder, down the slide, up the ladder, down the slide. But it's not a happy thing. It's not fun. And I realize eventually that it's because in the corner of the room, there's an adult human skeleton. And it's watching us. And I know that if any of us step out of line or go down the slide wrong, that this skeleton is going to come over to us and make us be in big trouble. The next thing I know, I find myself at the bottom of this skeleton, looking right up at it, right into its face, right into its eye sockets. And I said to it, are you a real skeleton? And it looked down at me and it said, yes, I'm real. And then I woke up and I had what we have after a dream for a couple of minutes where I was asking myself in bed as a little girl, what is real? The next dream I remember, I was about nine or 10 and in a way it wasn't quite a dream. It was actually an episode of sleep paralysis, which now you're all experts on. So I was laying in bed and I woke up, but my body was still paralyzed. I could open my eyes about halfway and look around the room, but everything was blurry and my consciousness was sort of mixed. I was half asleep and half awake. And it's in this in-between state that often people will have hallucinations. And in this case, I heard a voice. It was the voice of a man and it was whispering to me. First, it said my name, Emily Silverman, Emily Silverman. And then it asked me a question. It said, are you pretty? Are you pretty? Suddenly I can move my body again and I looked around the room. Again, I'm about nine or 10 and I drew the logical conclusion which was there's gotta be someone in my room. <laughs> so I got up, 
I went into my parents' bedroom and I shook my dad awake and I said, Daddy, Daddy, there's someone in my room. And he came out all groggy in his pajamas, looked around my room and then looked at me and he said, Emily, there is nobody in this house. And I remember that I actually didn't feel reassured <laughs> because if there was nobody in this house, then what did I hear? The next dream I remember is from medical school. So again, I'm in voracious reading mode, just like imbibing everything that I can about the human body and biology and neuroscience. And I have another episode of sleep paralysis, but this time, instead of hearing a voice, I saw something. So I woke up in bed and I see in the silhouette of my window is a man standing there, can't see his face, all in silhouette, and he's wearing a bowler hat and he's just watching me. And then I wake up and I say to myself, oh, that was another one of those sleep paralysis episodes. You've read about those in textbooks, how interesting. And I kind of blew it off until a couple of years later when for no particular reason, I decided to Google this image, sleep paralysis, man in a hat. And I found something really interesting, which is, this is a very common hallucination for people around the world who have sleep paralysis, across countries, across cultures, across languages. Which led me to ask, if this is all just a figment of my imagination, why are so many of us seeing the same thing? The most recent dream was actually just last year. It was a difficult time of life. I was having a bit of job stress, and I was also having some family stuff happen. My mom had just died. I had just connected with my birth mother. I'm adopted, and I was pregnant. So I had a dream and I woke up again in the dream, except this time it wasn't sleep paralysis, it was something else. It's something called a lucid dream, which is this bizarre state where you wake up in the dream and you can actually look around and make decisions and manipulate the dream environment. And so when I woke up, I was in an elevator and there was four floors and I was on the third floor and I decided, boop, I'm gonna hit the fourth floor, go up one story. Elevator starts going up, then it keeps going up, and then it keeps going up, and it's going faster and faster and higher and higher, and I'm quite sure that we've gone up way more than one story, and I start to get scared, and I start to panic, and I look around, and I'm trying to find a way out, and I turn to the wall of the elevator, and I see a peg in the wall, and hanging from the peg is a giant leather purse, and inscribed on this purse are three messages, and they're numbered, one, two, three. The first message says, divorce yourself from all problems. The second says, kindness equals kin. And the third message, the third message, I lost. When I woke up, I lay in bed thinking about these messages. I still think about them, not really sure what they mean. In a way, I feel like the first message was related to my job stress. Maybe it's communicating to me that one way to deal with your problems is not to over-identify with them. The second message 
feels connected to my new issues around motherhood and navigating that space. This idea that kindness and kin are somehow connected feels important. And I wonder what the third message said. So these are the questions that I have. I fear that I won't be able to find the answer to them in medical textbooks. And so then I wonder, where do I find the answers? Thank you. We doing this? Yeah. All right. I love it. Take it away. <laughs> do whatever you want. All right. Cool. Well, first of all, I was just reminiscing about the last time we were on the mic together. I think the most recent time was when we were recording in the studio when you were interviewing me. So it is really nice to be on the flip side and what an honor to be able to interview you on your own podcast. Oh my goodness. I would have no one else. <laughs> oh, that warms my heart. Well, it's good to have an excuse just to sit down and, and chat, and particularly about the story that you told back in October 2022. What inspired you to put together this live show, and what was that process like curating these stories? I was always really passionate about the arts and storytelling and felt like it was hard to find collaborators at UCSF. I mean, there's people like you, of course, but there's just not a centralized hub where people like us can find each other. Yeah. And I was actually in New Hampshire at a artist retreat, totally unrelated to UCSF. And I met this poet and she said, oh, what's your deal? And I said, oh, I'm at UCSF. She was like, oh, I was the UCSF artist in residence. And I was so embarrassed because I was like, <laughs> what what's is that? UCSF <laughs> artist in residence? And so sadly, it took me flying all the way to New Hampshire to learn about this program, which is actually housed at the UCSF Memory and Aging Center, which is part of the neurology world mm -hmm. of UCSF. And Bruce Miller is the head of that center. And he has this program called the Hellman Visiting Artist in Residence. Mm. And so when I got back from New Hampshire, I sent him an email and I said, we have to meet because I don't know how I didn't even know about you and that you existed. So I still remember I went down to Mission Bay and had lunch with him in his office. And of course, there's like glass everywhere. He served me lunch. There was like a menu and it was just so fancy. <laughs> mm. And we had lunch and he was just telling me about how much he believes in the arts and sciences working together to generate creative ideas and move all of the work at the Mac forward. And then he was kind enough to invite me to be the artist in residence the following year. Of course, that was the year the pandemic hit. And so there was a bit of a delay. But part of my work as artist in residence was to collaborate with them on some kind of live experience. They already have a partnership with the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. So we decided to do a show together, kind of the three of us. So it was going to be UCSF Science, 
the SF Conservatory music and then the Nocturnist storytelling. Mm. And Bruce and his team actually chose the theme of Sleep and Dreams. But when they picked that theme, I was super excited because as you can tell, it's a topic that's very close to my heart. You know, I've been to so many Nocturnist live shows and I mean, all of them are incredible, but I, in my memory, cannot remember a single one where you were a part of the lineup. So correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if this was the first time that you actually told your own story, but again, I really want to know what that decision was like for you to share on this stage. Yeah, I was really resistant to it initially because as you just said, Ashley, normally I'm the host and the MC. So I'm backstage and it's other people who are standing in the middle of the stage telling their story. But what happened was we had our first Zoom meeting with Bruce to brainstorm the show. And we were talking about how we were going to find the storytellers and putting out a call and doing all the usual things that we do. And Bruce sent me a DM in the Zoom chat. And he was like, why don't you tell a story? And I kind of blew it off. And I was like, oh, that's just Bruce. Like, you know, he, whatever. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Hi, Bruce. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I was just kind of ignoring it and thought it was a silly idea. But then I was talking to another friend, Nina Wise. She's a Bay Area artist, storyteller, performer, coach, dancer, multidisciplinary artist. And we met down at the Esalen Institute mm. in Big Sur. She's very like spiritually aware and just an amazing person. She's in her 70s. Nice. And I was chatting with her and this came up that this Sleep and Dreams show was coming. And then she too said, you know, I think you should tell a story because it's already a different format than the usual Nocturnist shows because you have the science and you have the music. So it's kind of the perfect venue to experiment and try this out. And she also said, it will also give you empathy for your performers because you will have gone through the experience, all of the coaching and all of the nerves. And then when you ask others to do it, you'll know better what you're asking them. So at that point, I caved and I said, okay, I'll do it. And then, of course, I was terrified. (laughs) Oh, man. As one of your former performers at a live event, that actually makes me feel very validated. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was quite nervous, too. But what an incredible series of events to get you to be on the stage. A little bit of arm twisting, some side messages in those DMs. I have to say a lot of good stuff happens in those side DM conversations on Zoom. So thank you, Bruce. (laughs) (laughs) Let's turn to your story. Hearing this a couple times, my initial thoughts were, number one, I'm so jealous that you're able to sleep so well all the time (laughs) as someone who has struggled with insomnia since residency. And also just this very deep fascination with the fact that you're able to remember your dreams so vividly and over a long period of time. I'm curious, do you still remember your dreams like this, even into adulthood and now as a a newish mom? I do. Not always, but a lot of the times. Yeah. A lot of the times in the morning, I'll turn over to my husband and 
tell him about my dreams, which is probably <laughs> kind of annoying because in a way, nobody really likes to hear someone else's <laughs> dream. But I'll be like, it was like White Lotus and I was at a hotel and there was this giant snake and then it zoomed out over the entire world. And then I realized there were multiple snakes and somehow that was like, <laughs> like this is literally a dream that I had just like three or four nights ago that I was explaining to my husband and he's kind of like making his coffee and he's like, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah, I do have pretty good recall. I'm not sure why. I love that. I was actually in the course of listening to your story, envisioning Boaz being the recipient of so many of these <laughs> these fresh experiences. Circling back to the dreams that you shared on the show, I can't wrap my head around the fact that the first dream you shared was from when you were five years old. I can barely remember a lot from that time, let alone my dreams. And so it sounded like you were in this room going up and down slides with some friends, but with this giant skeleton <laughs> watching over you. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about that and why do you think it's stuck with you all these years? I think part of the reason why I remember it is because it stuck with me back then. Mm -hmm. And so it was a dream that I recalled and I think told friends about when I was five, when I was eight, when I was 10, when, you know, I kind of kept recalling it again and again over the course of my life. And probably it's morphed and changed and isn't as with memory, an imperfect recollection. But I don't know why it stuck with me. My story coach was Nina Wise, the woman I told you about. She coached me through the story. And I remember she really wanted me to build out that scene and to describe the skeleton and initially was pushing me in the direction of really conveying the terror and horror mm. of the skeleton, almost like a horror movie. And it wasn't feeling right. And so I was talking with her and I realized that it didn't feel like a villain in a horror movie, like Night of the Living Dead mm. or anything like that, that it actually felt more like a parental figure. Wow. And the carpeted room where this dream took place, it was my parents' bedroom. Mm. And it was more a feeling of like not wanting to get in trouble or punishment than I'm going to get you, that kind of thing. So there must be something in there about being a kid and having parents and rules and punishment and not wanting to get in trouble. I think there's something just emotional wrapped up in there that stuck with me. Wow. Like we can spend the rest of this interview like teasing that apart. I mean, that's really fascinating to think about the juxtaposition of the fact that this should theoretically be like a fun game type scenario with a, a slide and friends, but there's kind of this imposing desire to want to play by the rules and not get into trouble, so to speak. The next two dreams you talk about and your story, both involving this experience of sleep paralysis. And it sounds like this was a recurring theme perhaps throughout the show. And I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about what sleep paralysis is and how you've experienced it? Yeah. So sleep paralysis is this phenomenon where you're asleep and then you wake up, but your body is still paralyzed. And so what happens with me is I'll wake up and I can only open my eyelids halfway so I can kind of see the room, but it's blurry and my body can't move. But interestingly, it doesn't really feel like being paralyzed because your consciousness is still in the dream body. So if you think to yourself, like move your arm, it kind of feels like you're moving your arm, but it's your dream arm, <laughs> not your real arm. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. And so you're kind of in this in-between space where you're half awake and half asleep. And I think because you're in that in-between space, your consciousness opens itself up to hallucinations. And so for me, that has been auditory and visual. And when it first happened, it was very bewildering. I didn't know what it was or what was happening. And then, of course, as I learned what sleep paralysis was and what hallucinations were, it started to disturb me less and less because I could kind of diagnose myself. Yeah. Is this something that you've experienced often? I've only heard more about sleep paralysis in the context of certain sleep medications or people who've been sleep deprived for a while. How have you experienced it? I've experienced it intermittently throughout life, starting from the time I was a child, but it's not something that strikes me every night. It'll happen maybe, I don't know, every few months, something like that. It's happened for me, I think I can recall maybe one time. It was actually pretty frightening, something that I actually never wanted to experience again. And it didn't help having certain medical shows on cable networks talking about people who awake during anesthesia. So in my mind, it kind of coalesces into this very kind of frightening, disturbing experience. But it seems like for you, you're able to at least distance yourself from the experience and not be so overwhelmed or frightened by it. Yeah, over time, I was able to recognize what was happening as it was happening, which made it less frightening. And I think in some cases actually opened the door to curiosity. Like I remember one time I woke up and I was having sleep paralysis and I said to myself, just get out of bed. And I got out of bed and then my consciousness sort of like slid back into my body. And then it was like, oh, wait, you're not actually out of bed. You're, you're still in this body. And it was like, try again, try again, <laughs> almost like an experimental way. Mm -hmm. And so then I think at one point I got out of bed and was able to like walk almost halfway down the hall to the bathroom before my consciousness like sucked back into my body. And then I found myself back in bed. And when I see like sci-fi films <laughs> talking about astral projection, mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, is that what I was doing? Like, is that real? <laughs> but who knows? And that's kind of part of my story is like, I feel embarrassed even posing that as a question to a community of scientific minded peers and colleagues. But when you've had that lived experience, you can't help but ask, was there any part of myself that was indeed mm. walking down the hall? Or was that all just imagined? I don't know. these opportunities to kind of pull ourselves outside of some of the rigidity around scientific thinking and really appreciate just like the awe and mystery and wonder of what it means to live in this conscious body. Before we touch more on that, I actually want to dig a little bit into the dream that you had in medical school. As you're describing this man in the bowler hat and his silhouette just staring at you, that to me actually felt like a bit of a horror movie. <laughs> I find it equally enthralling that you decided to actually Google this image years after the fact. How did you decide to do that? And what were you thinking about this image, this man, when he first appeared in that dream in medical school? I don't know what inspired it. I 
it would be much more linear and logical to say that I had this experience and then the next day I woke up and I Googled it. But that's just not true. What is true is that I didn't Google it until years later. Maybe I was remembering it and felt like Googling it. I don't know what moved me to Google it. But when I did, I was pretty floored. If you Google it, all these articles pop up and they have really scary illustrations and it talks about how people around the world who have sleep paralysis will often see this figure, a man in a top hat or a bowler hat, whatever kind of hat you want to call it. And the illustrations actually looked quite a bit like what I saw. Wow. And I talked about it with Boaz, who is very, very much in the camp of like, no, this can all be explained by brain science. Like he's very kind of anti supernatural, yeah. whatever. <laughs> and he had an interesting hypothesis, which is that people hallucinate people because that makes sense. Like we're people. And so it makes sense that we'd hallucinate someone else in the room with us. But that the reason the hat is there is to make it clear that it's a human because without the hat, it would just be kind of a tall blobby figure. And so the hat is what gives it that quality of like, oh, this is a person. So he thinks the hat is the brain's way of communicating that's a person in the shadows. But I don't know. I don't know if that's right. Yeah. I mean, I definitely can resonate with that theory. At the same time, I'm pro supernatural, like weird stuff happening that we can't explain. Admittedly, I had to Google what a bowler hat actually looks like because I don't <laughs> see a lot of people that I know walking around with one. Were there any theories that you came across that did feel like perhaps or it's just still too unknown? In the articles that popped up when I Googled this, they talked about how this must be some real being, like a real entity, a man in a hat who goes around haunting people in their sleep. But that didn't really resonate with me either. Like, I just don't see how that could be. I mean, who knows? <laughs> yeah. I think for me, I fall in the middle where it's this idea of a collective consciousness and maybe there's just something, I don't know, something about the collective consciousness that wants to see this image. Maybe it represents something about us as people, but I'm not sure if it's true that this is like a real thing that's out there. Who knows? Well, I liked the fact that it seemed to be true across a number of differences, like culturally, geographically, of the things that we can focus on that unite us. It is kind of cool to me to think that there is this particular entity or vision that has touched people across so many different divides. So I like the collective consciousness theory. This last dream that you touched on, you described it as a, a lucid dream. So the kind of dream where you're asleep and you can kind of interact and kind of change the outcome. And you describe that at that time, you were going through a number of things that were impacting you personally, your job and the loss of your mom and also anticipating being a new mom. And you described being on an elevator that you had decided, I'm, I'm just going up one floor. Next thing you know, it's going past one floor, two floors, it's going higher, it's going faster. And when I'm listening to this, I was like, man, I can think of times in my life where I'm just trying to like get to one place, but it's taking me somewhere else too far, too fast. And I'm curious, like, what did the elevator represent for you? Or is that something that you've thought about? For a long time, I subscribed to this worldview of materialism where like things exist and 
that's kind of it. And to the extent that we're conscious, it's just an epiphenomenon of like neurons. And I really was inculcated into this Western medical reductionist worldview and model. But in the last three to five years, that's started to crack. And I can't exactly explain why, but I've just been opening myself a lot more to uncertainty and to mystery. And like I said in the story, I've always had this hunger to understand reality and I've always turned to science to get answers, not just the medical sciences, but even the physical sciences. I I love reading about relativity and quantum mechanics and those sorts of things. But I feel like I kind of got as far along as I could in the sciences without having the math that I would need to have to understand it at a deeper level and just hit a dead end and realized that the science had taken me to the edge of what it could in terms of my understanding of reality and what it is and how it's structured. And that if I wanted to continue searching, that I was going to have to look to different models and different worldviews. And some of those have been more spiritual reading texts like the Tao Te Ching, which is this old Chinese text. And I don't know. And so I think maybe the elevator has to do with being catapulted into this whole new realm, Mm. different thinkers, different, just such a different way of apprehending truth. Mm. And I think I still have a lot of work to do in that department. As you can probably tell, like I'm very cognitive. I'm very, very up here. And as much as I love reading about spirituality and even individuals who have had spiritual experiences of like openness and spaciousness and all, you know, all of that. I still don't really have those experiences myself as much. And I think it's because I am kind of intellectualizing it still, but maybe in the dream, it was, (laughs) it was one way to get some direct experience of the unknown. I love that. I'm trying to contain my desire to dive more into that because it resonates so deeply. And I think that sometimes being so steeped in sciences and medicine, at least I can say for myself, I can feel this idea that science and the way that we interpret it has exclusive rights to what's true. And being able to break ourselves apart from that and welcome more uncertainty, more exploration of these phenomena that don't fit neatly into the empirical type thinking that we like to employ Talking a little bit more about these messages that you discovered in the elevator in your dream was divorce yourself from all problems. And the second one was kindness is kin. And I'm just like, wow, (laughs) like random, but also not random. (laughs) Like, you know, you could easily make the connection to some of the things that you were dealing with at the time, job-related stress and pregnancy. I just wanted to talk a little bit more about how you were thinking about those messages at the time and perhaps how they resonate today if you've thought about them again. It's still really mysterious. I don't know where those words came from. The first one, divorce yourself from all problems. I mean, I was pretty burned out working as a hospitalist at that time. And so I think the the concrete reading of that would be kind of like, quit your job. (laughs) Which is is what I ended up doing. I mean, I'm still attending two weeks a year and hold a volunteer faculty appointment. And so I'm still maintaining my affiliation with the university, but I'm not a full-time employee of medicine anymore. And so maybe one argument is like, that's what that message was trying to tell me. But it also feels deeper than that, Mm. like divorce yourself from all problems. 
And there's a part of me that actually rejects that statement because there are so many problems in the world having to do with healthcare and injustice and climate and, you know, things happening in the news and politics. Like, I don't want to be someone who sits by and doesn't jump in and vote and, you know, organize and, and attack the problem. And so in some ways, this advice of divorce yourself from the problem, like what could that mean? And as I'm talking, I'm noticing the use of the word divorce, Mm -hmm. which I usually think of in terms of marriage. Why divorce and not separate or contain or... I don't know. What do you think? (laughs) I get your opinion. Yeah, actually, I was thinking about that word too. And you even mentioned in your story talking about not overly identifying with our problems. And I think I've struggled with this too as a primary care physician. Believe me, I've had my fair share of thoughts about quitting my job on any given week. But it's interesting just looking at the news cycle as well this initial desire for me to run away to the woods and just keep everything in the background. But this idea of like not ignoring your problems or turning away from your problems, but like not letting it be a part of you, so to speak. Because when you think about it with a marriage, the idea is that two people become one, like you're a unit, you're, you're together, there's an overlap of your personhood. And so divorcing yourself from your problems doesn't mean that they disappear, but that you're not attaching yourself to them in a way that might change you. I should pay you for this. <laughs> I'm here all day. We've you're, got like, <laughs> you're like Joseph in the magic Technicolor dream coat, <laughs> analyzing my dreams. Well, what do you think about the next one? Kindness equals kin. There was an equal sign. Oh. So it said kindness equals kin. And I think that's really interesting, too, because it's not even a sentence. It's more like a mathematical statement. I don't know where this came from. And I think that's really the crux of the story is it still actually bothers me to this day. Did this come from my subconscious or my unconscious? Because if it did, like, I, that's crazy to me because... It just seems like the sort of thing I never could have come up with in my conscious mind. This isn't something that you repeat to yourself on a daily basis, like in the mirror. (laughs) (laughs) Or did it come from outside of myself somewhere? And that's a really big question. That is a question that, as I say in the story, a medical textbook can't even begin to answer. you know, as we're getting close to probably time here, I wanted to just settle in on this, this message that you didn't quite grasp, the third message that wasn't there. Do you think it's out there? Do you think that it's something that you're still searching for? Or have you kind of let the uncertainty settle around that? You know, I still have the sense memory in my body of reading that third message So there was something there and I read it and it hit. But then when the hand of consciousness or whatever, like pulled me out of the water back to awakeness, 
it's like it slipped out my fingers and it just like sunk to the ocean floor mm. and I'm never going to find it. And I mentioned that to a friend of mine and she was like, if it was that important, it'll come back mm. in some way, shape or form. And so that's what I try to tell myself. But it is very frustrating. If you can imagine like having something precious in your hand and then you drop it or you lose it. I, I wish I could have held on to it, but alas, mm-hmm. it's gone. I don't know. Maybe that's the lesson. Maybe there's a lesson in there too. Something about there never ever really being closure mm-hmm. and that part of living is, is that open door. Wow. I love that. I do hold out hope that that message will make its way back to you at the exact time that you need it, but also recognizing that lesson of being at peace with being able to let some things go unsaid, unread, (laughs) but living through it anyway, despite the uncertainty. Is there anything else that you think we should touch on or that you want to share that I didn't invite during the conversation? No, I'm just smiling, looking at your face on this screen and just realizing how much I miss you and how much I would love to spend some time together soon. And also how grateful I am that you agreed to step in and do this. I am just really honored that you are interviewing me today on The Nocturnals. Well, if we can spend a few more seconds gushing over each other, I want to... Just express how deeply mutual the feeling is, how excited I was to see the invitation and deeply humbled and honored that I would be the person that you consider for this. And also how much I love our friendship and the facts of how we met, how our relationship has grown, that we find ourselves here in a flipped interview on the Nocturnist. And again, how much love I have for you and this platform and looking forward to working together more. Thank you. And everyone listening should also check out Ashley's podcast, The Human Doctor with Kimberly Manning. It's truly an amazing podcast with storytelling and just great personalities. And so check that out. See, here I am jacking the, <laughs> jacking the host. Uh, I'm not mad at it. it. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Emily, for, for this conversation. It's been really enlightening and giving me some food for thought. So it's been a pleasure. Cheers. Thanks for listening. This episode of The Nocturnist was produced, edited, and mixed by John Oliver and produced by Carly Besser. Emily's story was coached by Nina Wise and performed live in San Francisco in October 2022 at Sleep and Dreams, Music, Neuroscience, and Stories of Slumber, a live show produced in collaboration with the UCSF Memory and Aging Center the Global Brain Health Institute, and the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. The Nocturnist executive producer is Allie Block, and the chief operating officer is Rebecca Groves. Molly Rose Williams is head of story development, and Noor Alsad is the development and outreach specialist. The Nocturnist original theme music was composed by Yusuf Monroe, and additional music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Illustrations for this season of the show are by Eva Vasquez. The Nocturnist is made possible by the California Medical Association, a physician-led organization that works tirelessly to make sure the doctor-patient relationship remains at the center of medicine. To learn more about the CMA, visit cmadocs.org.
www.thephysiciansfoundation.org. This season of The Nocturnist is sponsored by The Physicians Foundation, which empowers physicians to lead in the delivery of high-quality, cost-efficient healthcare by attending to physician well-being, supporting medical practices sustainability, and helping physicians navigate the changing healthcare system. The Nocturnist is also sponsored by the California Healthcare Foundation and donations from listeners like you. Thank you so much for supporting our work in storytelling. If you enjoy the show, please help others find it by leaving a rating and review in your favorite podcast app. To contribute your voice to an upcoming project or to make a donation, visit our website at thenocturnist.com. Again, I'm your guest host, Ashley McMullen. Until next time.